In recent years, I've become convinced that one of the great shortcomings of the church today is that we just don't know what to do with God's law. We read the Old Testament and we read these laws that seem so distant and irrelevant and we just kind of lay them aside. We don't know what to do with them. And this failure of the church has had massive consequences both inside the church and outward in society at large. The psalmist in Psalm 119 proclaims how wonderful God's law is. He speaks of its wisdom and its guidance, its righteous standard and the justice that it ensures. And he's not embarrassed about it either, like we are. He delights in God's law. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It stretches for 176 verses. There are 22 groups of eight verses each, and each one of those groups is for one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that was originally probably a memory device to, so that God's people could better remember this psalm. And if it seems impossible that someone might memorize Psalm 119, uh, consider this. David Livingston, the famous pioneer missionary to Africa, won a Bible from his Sunday school teacher for memorizing Psalm 119 when he was nine years old. And other Christians through the years have also just testified to the place that this psalm has had in their lives. Uh, the great Bible commentator Matthew Henry relates that his father encouraged his family to take a verse of this psalm every morning to meditate upon and so go over the psalm twice in one year and he said, that will bring you to be in love with all the rest of the scriptures. William Wilberforce, the great British abolitionist, recorded in his diary that during a time of political trouble, he, quote, walked from Hyde Park Corner, repeating the 119th Psalm in great comfort. So as he was battling injustice in society in that fight against slavery in Britain, he took comfort in the justice that was proclaimed in God's law, a justice that he was seeking to see take root, not just in his heart, not just in his church, but in the society at large. A bit less meaningful, but still fascinating nonetheless, is the story that James Montgomery Boyce tells of George Wishart, a bishop of Edinburgh in 17th century. He writes this, he says, Wishart was condemned to death along with his famous patron, the Marquis of Montrose, and he would have been executed except for this incident. When he was on the scaffold, he made use of a custom of the times that permitted the condemned to choose a psalm to be sung. He chose Psalm 119. Before two-thirds of the psalm was sung, a pardon arrived and Wishart's life was spared. And Boyce explained, Wishart was more renowned for shrewdness than sanctity. He was expecting a pardon, requested the psalm to gain time, and happily for him succeeded in delaying the execution until his pardon came. All 176 verses of this psalm speak of God's law. Each verse makes a unique contribution to the message of the psalm. We don't know for sure who wrote the psalm. Most think it was David. Some people think it was Daniel. Ezra is another who is sometimes suggested. And we won't get hung up on who the author is other than to say that it's inspired scripture that God has preserved for us. 
But whoever it is, the psalmist uses eight different terms in this psalm for God's law. And let me just highlight for you what each of those eight terms mean. The first term is simply the law, the Torah. This term is used 25 times, and it means to point. And the idea that it gives is teaching or instruction. The second term is word. This is used 24 times, and it speaks of God's divine special revelation. The third term is testimonies, and this is used 23 times. It's used in connection with the terms of the covenant. So it carries the idea of a witness. For example, the Ark of the Covenant is sometimes called the Ark of the Testimony. The fourth term is commandment, and this is also used 23 times. It means an authoritative order, just like you would expect it to. The fifth term is judgment. This is used 22 times, and it refers to anything God has done or decided. This is actually the word that's used in Exodus 21, verse 1. Just after God has given the Ten Commandments, and as he's introducing three chapters worth of case laws that are going to be kind of practical everyday examples of how to apply the Ten Commandments to life. The sixth term is decrees. And it's used 21 times. It speaks of God's divine will or what he has prescribed or enacted. The seventh term is precept. Also used 21 times. It has the meaning of orders or charges that are given to someone. And then the eighth term is uh, sometimes translated word, but it also has the idea of promise. And this one's used 19 times. It speaks of anything that God has spoken or commanded or promised. So the psalmist's use of these eight different terms is pretty evenly spread throughout the psalm. It's not formulaic, though. It's not like every section of eight verses uses the word one of these words one time. It's not like that, but they're fairly spread out throughout the psalm. So why the different terms? John Calvin comments on that. He says the diversity of words used in this psalm by David is not superfluous, for it shows us that the law of God does not only command how we should live and after what sort, but also to assure us of the goodwill of God as he promises salvation to us, leads us to Jesus Christ, stirs us up to call upon the name of God, gives us ceremonies to establish us therein, and moreover, it guides and holds us within our limits. At the same time, we shouldn't try to divide these terms all out and keep them separate as if they're talking about completely different things. Boyce explains, generally, when the Bible speaks of law, or Torah, it has something much bigger in mind. It's referring to the whole of God's spoken and written revelation, containing all the various elements that the other words for law in this psalm suggest. So as we go through Psalm 119, we're talking about God's law, but it's in a big sense. It's not just the list of commands, but the larger principles underneath it all as well. I like the comment that Alexander McLaren gives on this. He says, one thought pervades it. In other words, pervades the whole psalm. The surpassing excellence of the law. And the beauty and power of the psalm lie in the unwearied reiteration of that single idea. He says, its verses are like ripples on a sunny sea 
alike and impressive in their continual march, yet each catching the light with a difference and breaking on the shore with a tone of its own. Why spend the time on this psalm? What should we hope will be accomplished in our study together? Well, throughout the psalm, the psalmist himself actually suggests a twofold response. First, there's a heart response. The psalmist wants us to love God's law, to delight in it, to find joy in it, and to fear God because of it. And second, there's a response of the will. He wants us to meditate on God's law, to study it, to obey it, to keep it, to walk in it. And my prayer is that this study would, in a sense, revolutionize our thinking, that we would learn to think God's thoughts after him, that we would think about the world the way he's designed it to be, that we would think about how God's standards should be put into practice in every area of life, and that we would have the heart response and the will response that the psalmist urges. To that end, Here's what our study will look like. Okay, this is what you can expect each Sunday as we go through the psalm. Uh, each Sunday, I'll give an exposition of the verses from Psalm 119. So this will be the first half of the sermon. Some weeks, it'll be a whole section, so eight verses. Sometimes we'll just take four. And as we explain each of the verses, you'll find that there are very practical applications from those verses to your life. And then in the second half of the message, we'll do two more things. First, I'll give a scriptural principle about God's law. Now, some weeks that'll be drawn directly from the verses that we talked about. Other weeks it might be a little more loosely connected. But my goal is that by the end of the series, we'll have kind of this well-rounded collection of principles about God's law that we've learned. And then second, each week, I'll aim to take us to a particular law of God so that we can work to understand it and apply it. It might be a big overarching law that God gives. It might be one of the Ten Commandments. It might be one of the ceremonial aspects of the law, or it might be one of the case laws that the Old Testament gives. But we're going to learn how to bridge the distance between that Old Testament law and our world today in a way that faithfully applies God's law to our lives. And let me just finish this introduction with these words from the great American colonial preacher, Jonathan Edwards. He says this. He says, I know of no part of the Holy Scriptures where the nature and evidences of true and sincere godliness are so fully and largely insisted on and delineated as in the 119th Psalm. The psalmist declares his design in the first verses of the psalm, keeps his eye on it all along, and pursues it to the end. The excellency of holiness is represented as the immediate object of a spiritual taste and delight. God's law, that grand expression and emanation of the holiness of God's nature, and prescription of holiness to the creature, is all along represented as the great object of love the complacence and rejoicing of the gracious nature which prizes God's commandments above gold. 
Lord, I pray that as we begin this journey through Psalm 119, you would be our guide, that we would understand what you have said about your law, and that we would learn by the power of your spirit how to put it into practice in the lives of our church and us as individuals and all of the world around us as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.